Hey, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Um, if you are new with us, we are in a series walking through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and this morning we are in Hebrews chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, you can make your way to Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, if you don't own a Bible and you grabbed one of those black hardback ones off the table on your way in, uh, keep that Bible. It's a gift to you. And Hebrews 6 is on page 944. Uh, well, Stephen King uh, is a world-famous author who has written so many books and has had so many of his books turned into movies and TV shows that, uh, honestly, it's hard to keep up with all of them. And he is just such a big name that even if you've never read one of his books or seen uh, one of the movies or TV shows that, uh, his, uh, that are based on his books, I'm sure you know who he is. Uh, but it hasn't. It wasn't always that way for him. He he tells this story in his memoir on writing. But uh, in the early 1970s, uh, he and his wife had a few young kids at home, and they were poor. They were struggling to make ends meet, and so uh, they were living in a small trailer home. He was working two jobs. He was working as a high school English teacher, uh, and then during summer breaks, he was working at the local laundromat. Uh, she was working at Dunkin' Donuts, and again, they were basically living just paycheck to paycheck, struggling to make ends meet, and so he had always wanted to be a writer, and so he was writing short stories and selling those to magazines for $50 a story or a couple hundred dollars a story, and those, the money they were getting from those stories being sold was how they were paying for their electric bill or for medicine for their kids, and so it was like, well, uh, we sold a story this month, and so we can pay the light bill or we can pay for... Uh, medicine for our toddler's ear infection. Uh, he was writing in the laundry room of their trailer home just whenever he could fit in the time, and he had started writing a story about a girl who was being bullied at her high school, but the girl had telepathy. She had telekinesis. She could do things with her mind, and so he wrote a few pages of this story uh, and hated it. Didn't want to go on with it, thought it was garbage, didn't want to waste any more time with it, so he decided to quit on it and threw it into the trash. Uh, well, a little while later, his wife, Tabitha, fished those papers out of the trash and read the first few pages of the story and came to him and said, Steve, you've, you've got something here. I, you, you can't quit on this. You've got to write this. I want to know what happens in this story. And so with that encouragement, he did keep on writing it, and that eventually turned into the novel Carrie. And this is not a recommendation to read Carrie. It's also not a recommendation to read Stephen King. I'm just telling you what happened. Uh, but Carrie uh, got published in 1974, and then a little while after that, the paperback rights for the book sold for $400,000, uh, of which they got $200,000 of. And remember, this is the mid-1970s, and so uh, they were able to stop living paycheck to paycheck. He was able to quit his other jobs and begin to work full-time as a writer, and of course, the rest is history. Now, I, I tell you that story because so often uh, we look at people who are successful and we like to think that the reason there are, they are where they are is because they just had the inner grit and motivation resolve to keep going no matter how difficult things got. Uh, because honestly, that's the story we want to tell about ourselves too. That's what we want to think about ourselves, but so often that's not the story. So often they were about to quit. They were ready to give up, and instead of just digging deep inside of themselves to find more motivation to go on, someone from the outside came in and encouraged them, and that encouragement was just what they needed to break through. And look, the same is true for us. When things get difficult, 
We've only got so much motivation and grit and resolve. We need someone from the outside to come in and encourage us and strengthen us if we're going to be able to keep going. And the whole book of Hebrews is just one big encouragement to not quit on Jesus, to not turn away from following Him because Jesus is better than everyone and everything else. And God knows that, that our uh, faithfulness to Jesus, at times it's going to grow cold, that we're going to struggle to continue following Him, that we're going to wrestle with sin and questions and doubts. But the good news is that when that happens... God does not just call us to look inside of ourselves and try harder to keep going. No, He comes to us with His promises and His grace. He comes to us from the outside and encourages us to get our eyes off of us and put them on to Him so that we can find the strength to keep going. And that's what He does here in this passage. So let's look at it together. Hebrews chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 13 through verse 20. Starting in verse 13, the very word of God for us today says this. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise and the oath that you give here. God, would you help us to see this for the good news that it is? Would you accomplish what you say you have given this to do? Would you give us strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope you've set before us? Would you show us even more convincingly the unchangeable nature and character of your purpose to bless us and to save us? God, I I pray we'd be so overwhelmed by the beauty and goodness of your love and your promise, and your purpose to save us in Jesus. God, would you help us to see him? Would you help us to see his glory and his beauty, and how trustworthy you are because of what he's done? God, we can't do it. Only you can illuminate this word in our hearts and in our lives. So I pray you would do it right now in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, obviously, um, God wants to strengthen our hope in this passage. Verse 18 says he guaranteed his promise with an oath so that we who have fled for refuge would have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope he set before us. So God wants to strengthen our hope in this passage, and he does it in two ways. We'll see first that God encourages our hope through his oath, and then second, that God encourages our hope through his son. 
And so at the end of last week's passage, in verses 11 and 12, the author told us that he wanted us to imitate, to follow the example of those who through faith and patience inherited God's promises. And now here in in, in the back half of Hebrews chapter 6, he's holding Abraham up as an example of someone he wants us to imitate and follow the example of. But, But even more than that, he wants to show us why God is worthy of our trust, why we can wait with faith and patience to inherit His promises. Um, But if we're going to see that, we need to know and see some of Abraham's story because the author of Hebrews assumes we know Abraham's story here. And so let me just give you a quick rundown of Abraham's story. In Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham and calls him. He tells him to leave his homeland and journey to the land that God is going to show him. And he promises that He's going to be with him, and he's going to bless him, that he's going to give Abraham land, that he's going to make Abraham a great nation, and that Abraham, through Abraham, God is going to bless the entire world. The problem with these promises is that if Abraham is going to become a great nation, he needs to have children, uh, but he hasn't been able to have children. His wife Sarah is barren. They don't have any kids, and she can't have any kids. But, But in spite of this, God Uh, makes these promises and continues to make these promises. And so as time moves on, you see Abraham continue to stumble forward in faith with lots of periods of questions and doubts. Uh, In Genesis 15, God appears again to Abraham. When Abraham, most people think he's between 80 and 85 years old, and he gives Abraham the promises again. And Abraham says, yeah, God, these promises are great, but I haven't seen any fulfillment yet. When are you going to fulfill them? I I still don't have the son that you've promised me and all my inheritance, everything you're promising me, it's just going to go to one of my employees. But God says, no, just trust me. I'm going to give you a son, your very own son. Well, right after this, in Genesis 16, Abraham doubts the promise again and he takes matters into his own hand. And so he sleeps with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and Hagar gets pregnant and she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And Genesis 16 tells us that's when Abraham is 86 years old. Well, in Genesis 17, when Abraham is 99 years old, God appears to Abraham again and and confirms his covenant and says, hey, about this time next year, you and Sarah are going to have a son and call him Isaac when you do. Abraham laughs at this because when Isaac is going to be born, the time God is promising Isaac will be born, he's going to be 100 years old and Sarah is going to be 90 years old. And 90-year-old women do not have children. You know, the biology was not different back then. Like Sarah was barren before menopause and she was way past menopause at this point. I mean, it's just a biological impossibility that she would be able to give Abraham a son and have a son, but, but God just continues to make these promises. And in Genesis chapter 21, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90, just like God said would happen, she gives birth to a boy that they name Isaac. God kept his word and did what he said he was going to do. He kept his promise to Abraham, the promise he first made to him 25 years before that moment. And then a few years after that, in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham. He wants to continue deepening and strengthening Abraham's faith. And so he tests Abraham to see if Abraham really loves God or just the things that God can give him. 
And so he asked Abraham to offer his son Isaac up on the mountain to God as a sacrifice. And Hebrews 11 is going to tell us that Abraham was willing to go through with this. He was willing to do this because he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. He believed God would not go back on his promise to bless the whole world through his family and through his descendants. And Hebrews 11 tells us that that figuratively speaking, in a way, he did receive Isaac back from the dead because right when he's about to go through with this sacrifice, God stops him and provides a ram that dies in place of Isaac so that Isaac is spared and doesn't have to. And so this is what verse 15 is talking about when it says Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He received the son that God promised and he received that son back from the dead. God did what he said he was going to do and kept his promises in Abraham's life. Uh, and, And the author of Hebrews ties this to us because we are in the same place that Abraham was. We're in the same story. Uh, Like Abraham, we're called to trust in God and patiently wait and walk with him while we wait for him to fulfill his promises. And, And just like Abraham, we have all of these reasons to believe that God's promises aren't going to come true. I mean, Abraham had to sit with the fact that God was promising a son to him through a 90-year-old woman who had never been able to have children. He had to wrestle with the fact and believe the truth that God was not lying even when he didn't see immediate fulfillment of God's promises. And, And we're in the same place because God has made all of these incredible promises to us about uh, um, uh, about what he has called us to do, uh, about how he's offered us eternal life and rest and brokenness uh, from the curse. But is, is that what we see right now? Is eternal life and rest from sin and brokenness and curse what we see? No, usually we're seeing the exact opposite. We are seeing the effects of our sin and other people's sin in our lives. We are experiencing the brokenness uh, of the curse, and it seems like God is just taking His sweet time to keep His promises to us. And so often, just like Abraham, we have every natural reason to believe that God's promises are just empty words. But the good news is that just like Abraham, God's not calling us to a blind faith. He's not calling us to just dig deep inside of ourselves and find the strength to keep going on. No, just like Abraham, he calls us to look at him so that even in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary, we have every reason to trust him. This is what the passage is talking about uh, when it talks about God swearing an oath because even though the promise to Abraham was enough, God didn't just make the promise he also guaranteed this promise with an oath. This is what verse 16 is talking about when it says, in all of our disputes, uh, uh, and it says people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of our disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. People swear by something or someone greater than themselves because we know uh, we're not able to convince people that we're telling the truth on our own, on our own authority. And so we swear by someone or something else to raise the stakes and show, hey, I'm really telling the truth here. And so, for example, you know, if, 
if you were to say, uh, I swear on my mom's life, I am telling the truth here, what are you saying? You're saying, if I'm lying, God can take my mom's life. That's how serious I am that I'm telling the truth here, uh, which is obviously really mean to your mom, so don't use that one. You know, but if you say, I swear to God, I'm telling the truth, what are you saying? You're saying, I'm so sure that I'm telling the truth here that, that if I'm lying, God can kill me. God can strike me dead. God can punish me. That's how sure I am I'm telling the truth. I'm calling God to be a witness on my behalf uh, that I am telling the truth here. And so an oath, swearing an oath, is a way to up the ante and, and go all in to end the conversation. This is why he says in all of our disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Swearing an oath pushes all your chips in and it ends the conversation about whether or not you're telling the truth. This is why perjury in a courtroom is such a big deal. You know, if your friend is being prosecuted for shoplifting and you get called to the witness stand and you swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And then you lie on the stand. You say, hey, she couldn't have committed the crime you're accusing her of. She couldn't have shoplifted on that day because she was with me the whole time. We weren't even in North Carolina. We were in Virginia. And then they find out that you're lying well, now you've perjured yourself and you can be prosecuted even though you didn't commit the original crime yourself because your lie interfered with their ability to bring about justice and truth. Your lie messed with the integrity of the whole justice system. And so an oath is supposed to be, because an oath is supposed to be the nail in the coffin confirmation that someone is telling the truth. And listen, God didn't need to do this. God did not need to swear an oath. His promise was enough because God is not a liar like we are. He always tells the truth. But in Genesis chapter 22, after Abraham is willing to offer up Isaac on the mountain, God swears this oath to him. And he says, by myself, I have sworn, surely I will bless you and multiply your offspring. What's quoted here in verse 14 because Abraham, he received part of God's promise in this lifetime with Isaac, but he didn't receive the fullness of what God promised to him. God promised to him to give him the land, to make him a great nation, to bless the entire world through his family and through his offspring, none of which happened in Abraham's life. And God continued to make these promises throughout Abraham's life. But here in Genesis 22, he ups the ante and he goes all in and he swears an oath to Abraham that he's going to bring it about. He's got no one greater by whom he can swear. God can only swear to God. And so he swears this oath and says, Abraham, I swear the only way I'm going to fail to keep this promise to you is if I stop being God. I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will do what I promise to do for you. And look at what verse 17 says about this. It says, not only was this oath for Abraham, this was an oath for us. It says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. We are the heirs of God's promise to Abraham, the ones who will inherit 
uh, God's promises, and, and this is for us. God swore this oath uh, for us, and look again at what it says in verse 17. It says God desired to do this. God wanted to do this. God so loves you that he wanted to give you even more reason to believe, even more reason to trust that he's going to come through on his word and do what he has promised to do in your life. Because listen, just like Abraham struggled with doubt and questions and fears as he walked with God in this life, God knows that we're going to struggle with doubt. God knows that we're going to struggle with being patient and enduring and waiting for the full fulfillment of his promises in our life. And what we see in Abraham's story is that over and over, when Abraham doubts and when Abraham falls and stumbles into sin, God does not shame him and decide to start over with somebody new. No, he keeps giving the promises to him. He keeps coming to him with grace, and the same is true for us. God knows you're going to have questions. God knows you're going to struggle with patience. God knows you're going to be tempted to turn after other things. God knows you're going to struggle to endure. And God is so gracious. He wants to answer your doubts. He wants to meet you in your struggles. He wants to give you even more reason to believe. And so he swore this oath, something that he did not need to do, as a testimony to you to help you and give you even more reasons to believe and to trust him. And here's why this oath is such good news. This oath is good news because of God's character, because of who God is. If you're watching a movie and a mob boss swears to God on something, you can just know that whatever comes out of his mouth next is going to be anything but the truth. But that's not the case when we're talking about God. Look again at what it says in verse 18. It says, it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. God's word is unchangeable and his purpose is unchangeable. So if God swears to God on something, then you can take whatever comes out of his mouth to the bank. He's going to keep his promises to you. This is why Romans 8 says that those whom God has justified, he is also glorified. Justification is what happens the moment we put our trust and our faith in Jesus. God justifies us. He unites us to Jesus and he counts us righteous with Jesus' righteousness. Glorification is what will happen when we see Jesus face to face. We'll be transformed and we'll be made to look completely like him. We'll be perfected and glorified because we'll see Jesus as he is. Now that has not happened yet, but Romans 8 uses it in the past tense like it already has because if God has said it, it's like it already has happened. It's as good as done. God's word is all-powerful, and it's unstoppable. And God hasn't just said it once. He hasn't just said it one way. He doubled down. He has promised to save you, and he swore an oath to save you. So we have every reason in the world to hold fast to the hope he set before us. We have every reason in the world to trust that what he has promised to do for us in the future, he is going to come through with and do. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, but 
the Bible really gives us two main places that we're to look for assurance of salvation, the promises of the gospel and our fruit. But, but those aren't two equal places that we're called to look. We, we do need to examine ourselves and look at our fruit and see if we are in the faith. But if all we ever do is look at ourselves and our fruit, we're going to be constantly unsure of whether or not we actually belong to God. Because we struggle, we stumble, we sin, we doubt, we fall, we grow cold. But what you see in a passage like this is that ultimately the place we look for assurance of salvation is God and his faithfulness to us. Do you notice there's no command in this passage? In other places in the book, he commands us to hold fast, but he's not commanding us to hold fast here. He's saying God did all of these things to give us even more reason to hold fast. The focus here is on God, on his character, on his promise, on his word, on his faithfulness, on his oath. And so listen to me, when you struggle with assurance of your salvation, when you begin to grow weary in the waiting, when you begin to be tempted to go after other things, come back to this truth. God cannot lie. God would have to un-God himself. He would literally have to stop being God to fail to keep this promise to you. His purpose and His Word is unchangeable, and He's promised to bless you and to save you. They have every reason to hold fast to Him, to cling to the hope that He set before us. Because in the fullness of time, not only does God encourage our hope through this oath, not only does God make this oath, in the fullness of time, He made good on this oath, and He did it in Jesus. And so what we see next in the passage is that ultimately God encourages our hope through his son. Look back again at the passage of verse 19 with me. It says, we have this, and that this here is hope. He's saying, we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, this is a beautiful picture because what's true about an anchor? If your anchor is strong, it really does not matter how rocky the waves are or how bad the wind is outside your boat. Your boat is not going anywhere because your anchor is going to hold fast. And, and this isn't just any anchor. He says this is a sure and steadfast anchor. It's strong. It's steady. It's sure. It will not be moved. I mean, think about what this means. He is saying that in the gospel, the hope of the gospel, the hope of God's promises and salvations is an anchor for our soul, which means that this hope can steady you when everything else around you is not steady. This means that you do not have to be ruled and tossed to and fro by your situation and your circumstances because in the gospel, you have an anchor for your soul that is stronger and more sure than your situation and your circumstances. This means that your life can be ruled by peace and quietness and trust in God, not just when everything lines up just right, but at all times, because at all times, you have an anchor for your soul. Why is this anchor so secure? Why is this hope so steadfast? Why is it an anchor for our souls? Well, he tells us, verse 19, look again. It's 
because it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's talking here about the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle, the tent that the Israelites built as they journeyed through the wilderness towards the promised land, uh, and then the temple, the more permanent location uh, of that tabernacle, the building that they built once they got into the promised land. And, and both the tabernacle and the temple were divided into three sections. Uh, there was, the first section was an outer court right outside uh, the, the tabernacle and the temple. And then inside the tabernacle and the temple, there was what was called the inner court or the holy place. And this is where the priests spent most of their time in the temple or in the tabernacle working and ministering. But even further, even deeper into the temple and the tabernacle, there was this third section, and this section was called the most holy place or the holy of holies, and this is where God lived. This is where God put his presence among his people. This is where God lived among his people in the holy of holies, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And the holy of holies was divided off from the holy place with a big curtain because God lived there, and no one could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest, and the high priest could only go once a year. God is holy, and because of our sin, our access to him was cut off. Our our relationship with him was mediated by this high priest, the only person who could go and be with God where he lived, and again, only once a year. What does Hebrews say here? Hebrews says, our hope is a hope that does go into the inner place behind the curtain. Our hope is a hope that has gone into the true holy of holies in heaven where God lives. Now, how can that be? How can it do that? Well, it can do that because our hope is Jesus. Jesus, look at what it says in verse 20. It says that this hope is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our hope goes behind the curtain because Jesus has gone behind the curtain. Jesus has gone behind the curtain as our forerunner. Think of forerunner in the sense of trailblazer. Jesus has blazed the trail. He has carved out the path that we are going to follow. Jesus has opened up the way back to God. Our access to God was cut off. We were separated from him. The only hope for anyone to have a deep relationship with God, the only person who could hope for that was the high priest. And again, only once a year, but not anymore. Because here's the good news of the gospel that Hebrews is laying out. Jesus descended from heaven and he took on our flesh. He became a human being and he lived a perfectly faithful life. He never was disobedient or unfaithful to God. And then after living this perfect life, he went to the cross and on the cross, he offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. He died on the cross for our sins and he was buried. And then he rose from the dead, victorious over death, never to die again. And after he rose from the dead, he then ascended all the way back into heaven, all the way back into the presence of God as a man, as a human being, and he has now become our great high priest. 
And just like the earthly high priest in the temple and the tabernacle, when he came into the Holy of Holies, when he came into the presence of God on our behalf, he came with blood, his blood, and God accepted his sacrifice and his offering for our sins. All of which means that Jesus has truly gone into heaven, into God's presence as our forerunner, as our trailblazer. Jesus has brought us in the flesh back to God. Because right now, at this moment, there is a human being in the presence of God, in the true holy of holies. And if we trust in him, we are united to him, which means we are going to go there too. Jesus's present reality, it's our future one. Jesus goes into the presence of God first, but he's not going alone. He is going to bring us with him. You can trust God's promises and his oath. God cannot lie. He has proven it in Jesus. Jesus signed it and sealed it with his blood, and then God raised him from the dead. God's promise was that through Abraham's offspring, he would bless and bring salvation to the entire world. And that's what he's doing right now in Jesus. So we have every reason to trust that we can trust the fulfillment of God's promises, even when we don't see that fulfillment yet. We have every reason to trust that God is not going to go back on his word. Because look, Jesus has entered into our darkness and defeated it. He went into the grave, and he came back out on the other side. He stared down all that separated us from God, and he fought it, and he won. The sin that kept us from a relationship with God, he killed on the cross. He rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he now sits at the right hand of God as our high priest, and he has gone there as our forerunner, as our trailblazer. Listen, real life, eternal life, a face-to-face relationship with God and His people free from corruption and sin and death and sorrow and brokenness, the life you were made for because of the work of Jesus, you are going to get there. You are going to get in. You are going to be where he is. Jesus is going to bring you with him. You, you will get to know life with God in his presence, free from sin and free from death forever. That that is the promise of the gospel. And while we wait, the Bible tells us we have what what it calls the down payment of this hope. God has sent His Holy Spirit to live in our hearts so that we could have a deep relationship with God right now. Through His Word and through His Spirit, we have the ability to have a relationship and intimacy with God that the people of of God in the Old Testament would have killed for. We can, all of us, from the least of the greatest, know God in a way that, that even Moses and all of the high priests didn't. An even deeper relationship with God is coming in heaven. Every day is better than the one before, and it never ends. We, we know Him by faith now. We will see Him by sight then. 
And so when you struggle to wait, when you get weary in the waiting, when following Jesus gets difficult, when you're tempted to fail to believe, when you're tempted to turn away, look to the anchor for your soul. You and your best efforts are not the anchor. Jesus is the anchor. And that holds secure no matter how stormy it gets outside the boat. God so wanted to prove to you that you can trust His promises, that He went to the grave and back to prove it to you. All He asks you to do now is cling to Him, wait on Him, trust in Him, continue following Him. He will do the work of keeping His promises. He will be faithful to His Word. He will bring you to heaven, to Himself, not because you've qualified yourself for it, but because Jesus has gone there as a forerunner on your behalf. You and I have every reason to trust Him. So let me pray that we would. God, thank You for Your Word and for the promise of the Gospel here. Thank You for the hope and encouragement we have in Your Son, Jesus. Thank You that He is an anchor for our souls, a hope that's gone into Your presence and gone into Your presence on our behalf as a forerunner. God, would you strengthen us with this hope? Would you help us to believe that even when it looks like you are not going to come through on your word, even when we have all of these natural reasons not to trust you, you've given us every reason to trust. You've proven yourself faithful and true. So help us. Would you, would you use your word to give us the strong encouragement to hold fast to you? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.